Your name is Stryker? Yes, it is. That's fire. <laughs> wow. I love sandwiches. It's called tuna on toast. I, I, I spit. I don't know what I'm doing. I love music and I love those that create it. Yeah, welcome to another episode of Tuna on Toast. It is Ted Stryker, and if it's your first time here because Matt Skiba led you here, welcome to the show. I've got a great library of Tuna on Toast episodes. I mean, I don't think I'm very good, but my guests rule, because if you like Matt Skiba, um, I've had Davey Havoc on the show and Brett Gerwitz, M. Shadows, Mike Shinoda, Tom DeLonge. Uh, we got Josh from Queens of the Stone Age, Vic Fuentes. The list goes on and on and on and on. So after Matt, who will be on in just a second, please have a listen to my other episodes. And if you don't mind spreading the word on this podcast, Tuna on Toast, there's a one-man operation here. A lot of work going on. I also have a YouTube channel, which is a miracle, Tuna on Toast with Stryker. You can see a majority of my interviews on there as well. All right, let's get to Matt Skiba. Blood, hair, and eyeballs. How did he come up with that name? He answers it in the very beginning of this episode. And can you believe... 10 studio albums for Alkaline Trio. That first one you probably listened to a million times in 1998 called God Damn It. And that led to Maybe I'll Catch Fire. And then eight more after that. A ton of tours. We talk about his early family life. And we talk about his bandmates, the current ones, the past ones. We talk Blink-182 and everything in between. And, you know, just overall, it was a very fun, relaxed conversation. At least for me, I got to sit back. I got to look at Matt Skiba on my laptop. And he just sounded great. And he looked great. And I learned a lot of new information not only about Matt, but about making music and Alkaline Trio. So without any further ado, please welcome to Tuna on Toast from Alkaline Trio, Matt Skiba. One, two, three, four, five, four, three, two. Recording in progress. Yeah, I honestly, I've never done Zoom on my computer, if you can believe it. You look great. I do? Yeah. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. But you you looking handsome as ever, my friend. Thank you very much. Well, let's get right into this. As we sit here today, I have blasted uh, two of the new songs on my radio show. And I'm just curious, uh, Blood, Hair, and Eyeballs, how long have you been sitting on that song? Was that something you wrote eight years ago? When did this one happen for you? Well, all the songs on the on the record are were written for the record. So the the name uh, comes actually from my mom, who was uh, in Vietnam. Both my parents are Vietnam veterans. My mother was a nurse over there and a battle surgeon and a nurse like in the DMZ. So she was she saw action, a lot of it. And uh, and then when she got back to the States, she uh, was an emergency room nurse in Chicago. And when they would have really busy nights, she wouldn't talk about the carnage. She never talked about the war. Uh, is just now starting to write about it. But whenever they had a like an especially busy night at the emergency room, she would say it was blood, hair, and eyeballs, which was like gallows humor or emergency room slang for the obvious uh, blood, hair, and eyeballs. So uh, it's something that I've, a, a, a saying I've known since uh, I can, as long as I can remember since I was a kid and always, thought it uh, impressive in all kinds of ways. And so when we were writing the record, we we had kind of, we, we wrote the record from the ground up. We wanted to write the record in the same room. Ooh. So, um, which we hadn't done in many years. We would always send each other demos and go from there and, and kind of learn each other's ideas and give our input. But 
we built all these songs based pretty much from the ground up and we had names on our on our progress chart we had just fake names one was hot for preacher one was <laughs> blood hair and eye but like we had all these stuff but you know titanic sex sex on the titanic or some dumb shit right like a bunch of really stupid unusable names that we just could identify each song didn't have they didn't have lyrics at this point so we wrote the music first, lyrics later, for the most part. So yeah, Blood, Hair, and Eyeballs was an old saying, new song. Was your mom excited that you used that name? Did she, Violate? it's not the right word, but it's like she opened up, she's opening up about her time, and, and, and now you're taking something that she said and using it as your art form. Does, was that totally fine with her? She loves it. Yeah, my mom is awesome. We're, we're very close. My dad passed away last year. I'm sorry. And- Thank you. No, it's, you know, he had a great run. He had brain cancer, but died, thankfully, very quickly uh, for something like that. I mean, I have friends who have have survived cancer. Mark Hoppus, for instance, you know, he was a, an older guy, young, healthy, 80 year old. But when, luckily, uh, there were pain. I was staying in Chicago and helping my mom with my dad. My sisters were there as well. And uh there were pain meds like all you know for him and when the pain started and luckily that never happened so uh we're thankful that we miss him but we're thankful that he wasn't in pain and he was lucid and joke making jokes the whole time so he's he's good and uh i'm glad that his suff- like suffering didn't even really start i'm sure it was horrible for my mom and that was hard to watch but she's doing great she's a, a young healthy 70 something i don't want to sell her out right. but um 70 going on like 30 so we talk daily and she's my biggest fan supporter confidant a lot of times when i'm talking to her on the phone i'll be uh, people that maybe have just joined the crew or maybe just joined the band i think adam was on we were on the bus and i was talking to my mom and i hung up and he was like who are you talking to i was like my mom he's like you talk to your mom like that i was like yeah I mean, what you know, there's certain she's still my mom. There's I try and watch my language, but she's a she's a pirate. Wait. She's she's been to war, she's working in the ER and and you know, worked with, with homicide detectives and all kinds of stuff over the years. So she is not uh yeah, she's a wonderful, warm, loving person, but yeah, she's uh, I get my dirty mouth from her. Compared to what you do for a living, and of course what I do, your mom and dad really worked, really put themselves out there. It was stress every second, probably of almost every single day. Did that have an effect on the, on the route that you took to be a musician at all? Absolutely. And, and my parents, my mom came from this cold kind of, uh, military. Uh, her father was a a Colonel in the army. Wow. Uh, Her mom was, you know, a cool grandma to us, but just icy. Uh, and my dad came from just utter poverty, grew up in the Ozarks and, both my parents saw the military as a means to afford college and nursing school. And, and my dad became a physician um, and very self-made people. Uh, and the, the military was, you know, a, uh, uh, a stepping stone to something better. And then, of course, Vietnam kicked off and they got sent. So they're, they're very liberal, lovely, compassionate people that just happened to have uh, fought in one of our messiest and longest wars right. until Afghanistan, of course. But yeah, my dad, my dad and I had a rough patch because I went to art school in Chicago and he went, wanted to give his kids everything he didn't have. And he fought tooth and nail for, he wasn't, he's a smart guy, but he had to work like, 
you know, he had to bust his ass in in dental school and medical school, mm. which he put himself through completely. So when I dropped out of school to play in a punk rock band, he was not happy. My mom, my mom always, I told my mom and she knew we have kind of this like telekinesis where I, uh, if that's the right word, telepathy, I guess. Yeah. Uh, she knew that it was going to be fine. I knew it was going to be fine. My dad didn't know. He was just, yeah, we didn't really talk for a couple of years, but I also understand. I tried to speak to him. He just wasn't really having it. But, you know, even when we were, weren't really on speed, I would call the house and he would answer and then just pass the phone to my mom, you know, kind of oh, thing. Oh, man. And, uh, but he always told me that he loved me. So that's sweet. Yeah. So when God Damn It came out, I think that was like 1998 and he saw his son. Wow, my son and his two screwball friends have created something from nothing. And like people are going to see these guys play. Was that the time he had a little bit of a turnaround or was it much later than that? It was a, quite a bit later. Than oh, it that. was. Wow. Because um, that album, God they, damn it, is so good. Well, we were still playing, you know, Fireside Bowl. We were playing like punk rock shows where I'm like, mom and dad are not going to like this. Both my parents are sober. Uh, they were never really drinkers, but my mom being an ER nurse for so long just could not stand being around drunk people. And she's she's uncomfortable in crowds for uh, obvious reasons to me anyway. Um, so, you know, loud noises and, and drunk screaming people are not her forte. But uh, when we started playing the Metro, uh, the the cabaret metro in Chicago is just called the Metro now. That's where I saw my first punk rock show, Social Distortion. Wow. I went well. The first punk show I went to, like as an adult, I was like twelve, and I I lied to my parents and went, took the train downtown and went to Social D, and I got in big trouble. Um, what do you think of Mike Ness and those guys at twelve years old? Not just the music. But the camaraderie within those that attended, were you able to feel that? Yes. I mean, it was also a time when punk rock was still scary. Uh, it was it was Chicago was a violent scene. I mean, they had to move from the Cubby Bear to Metro. They kept naked ray gun shows, for instance, weren't dissimilar from black flag shows in Los Angeles back in the day where the police would be there. And, you know, no, there were a couple of riots, but but it was um yeah, it was pretty rough and tumble, but I loved it. I loved being that danger, but also, yeah, the crowd, the camaraderie, the, uh, there was all, you know, there was a big skinhead scene back then. So a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, black and Hispanic skins that were like sharp skinheads, which I ended up running around with for a little while. It was like, if you can't beat them, join them. Uh, because if you weren't, you were, you're in trouble. And I, and I was a little enough kid that nobody really fucked with me. But I realized like that's going to change pretty soon. Flash forward to we start playing the Metro and that's when my parents started to realize like, oh, this might actually be nice uh, in their nomenclature, a career or my dad's anyway. Right. Well, I'm very happy that he was able to see your success. And even though you had kind of a rough patch for those two years, he saw what you can do, what you're like on stage, how prolific of a songwriter and performer you are, man. Has your career, and I want to talk a lot about some of the new songs that I've heard, has your career, Alkaline Trio, gone how you hoped it would? Starting from in like 97, has the path gone how you wanted it to? And then some, to put it lightly. Our first goal, like I remember Dan and I, we went to a Super Chunk show when we were kind of first starting out. We're both big Super Chunk fans. 
uh adam is as well but uh we went to super chunk and there were like 500 people is at the lounge acts in chicago this 21 and over bar that's that's not there any longer but all the like touch and go bands would play there rocket would play there uh Jawbox, you know all these cool bands that we still love uh but we saw super chunk this one night and there were 500 people there and we said to each other man if we could do that if we could get 500 people in ish in every city that would be heaven on earth and so we surpassed that a long time ago how did the word spread about alkaline trio in the 90s there that something was happening with this band was it flyers how did it work for you guys yeah yeah we were we were making our own flyers we were you know making a cassette we made a cassette tape and we were uh, all bike messengers at the time. Like I, I dropped out of school and I knew my dad was going to be pissed. <laughs> and, you know, they were helping me out with money, like because I was going to school. So they were helping me financially, you know, a couple hundred bucks a week here and there, whatever. Nothing grandiose. I mean, they wanted me to work for, for, for what I had. But I was very lucky to have such supportive and loving parents. And even through the time my dad was upset with me, I understood even the shitty little kid I was back then. Uh, I understood where where he was coming from, and I didn't want to prove him wrong. I just wanted to make him proud and right. and realize that I was doing the right thing. So yeah, we we were part of this bike messenger community. So we that's kind of where our beginning started was in this in the bike messenger scene, and of course Fireside Bowl. We had a lot of really good allies early on. Brian Peterson, who booked um, Fireside booked some of I booked our first two tours I mean we toured but we were playing in living rooms for 20 people Mm. or whatever and it was a blast I mean we were psyched that anyone was there yeah uh but playing like college parties and basements and all kinds of stuff and it was a blast sleeping in tent we had a tent we would sleep in um and like we have a song called cooking wine because we would buy this cheap ass like three dollar jug of wine and just (laughs) sitting in a tent but it was great fun we didn't know anybody you know it's it's it was it was really fun and then brian started booking our tours and we started to actually play venues the bug jar in rochester was an early ally and uh bob rest in peace so yeah clubs like that smaller but you know that's when we actually the bug jar was one of our first rochester was one of our first like strongholds outside of chicago so just slowly but surely we got had people hooking us up and helping us and went from there what about the content of your songs and being comfortable enough in your own skin or maybe uncomfortable enough to sing about the things that you have been singing about for so long and heartache and love, but presented in a way that doesn't feel like it's cheesy or here's a ballad. It's, it's just really well done. Why that route for you content wise, lyrically? I think a lot of it had to do with, I've always loved storytellers, artists that are storytellers. Ani DeFranco was mm. a huge influence and her stuff is very like personal and and using you know of course analogy allegory and and um metaphor a lot uh but telling it like it is and i think and neil diamond my parents like loved neil diamond and elton john so those those two guys i still am a huge fan of both of them and their songs are incredibly personal and incredibly beautiful and i just realized like uh and even social distortion like uh or public image limited some of my first loves were had a personal emotive thing to some of some if not all of their songs but it was you know I felt to really connect with people you have to sing it like it is and uh and also hopefully you know get people involved but 
hopefully tell their story and some let the, leave it open to some amount of t- interpretation right um until you don't i mean sometimes you know specificity is key so you know those those little like awkward uh blunt things can can come in handy as well and you used a word that uh over the last two years i believe in so much connectivity how do you how does I say one connectivity or i think you said connect Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I'm just using is a con- good word. Yeah. I, and it's like this comedian on stage, are they connecting with me? A songwriter right here, a character in a sitcom, like connecting with someone is not easy to do, but once you're able to do it in the most authentic way, Holy crap, you've got us for a very, very long time. And I feel like that's what you and the guys have done for all these years. Well, thank you. That's, that's what we, that's what we aim to do. So if we landed it with, one person, I'm grateful. And also, when I listen to um, Blood, Hair, and Eyeballs, I'm not saying you did this, but I felt like it was a middle finger. Guess what, everybody? We're back. This is what we know how to do. We still can do it. We can do it flawlessly. So let's. we're set for the next chapter. Not our intention, right. but I love that. <laughs> we can tell everyone it is. Like, just edit that part out. I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, it was... Um, uh, I played some of the songs for I played I played some of the record for Brendan Kelly from Lawrence Arms, uh, a good friend of mine. We grew all grew up together. Dan and and Brendan were in a uh, were in slapstick together. So I've known those guys since we were playing the third floor in Elgin when we were teenagers, uh, pre-Alkaline Trio. So I played Brendan the songs and and of all of them, he said Blood Hair and Eyeballs is the most. He's like it's just classic Alkaline Trio. It sounds familiar but new and like that's the song that you guys should drop first right and the label agreed and so um but yeah i I, you know all i know how to do is write a song how it is accepted or hated or whatever i just sort of like it's like i don't have children but i've heard the analogy of like dropping your kid off at school and just hoping for the best (laughs) same thing with songs i wonder if those of you watching or listening to matt and i hang out if you did what i did and that is I heard that song. I listened to it eight times. And then I'm like, you know what I need to do over the next 72 hours is go listen to all Alkaline Trio songs that have ever been created. That's uh, that's the inspiration that it had on me. When awesome. you um, Earlier, you talked about uh, recording the songs with everybody in a room together. Where was that and how long was the process? So we did a three-day kind of warm-up. We had we had uh, we so we were sending each other demos like we always have because all of us live in different cities. And Derek was in the band at the time. Right. Yep. Uh, Derek played on the record. I know a lot of people think it was Adam because he's in the videos, but um, uh, Derek played on the record. It was his last hurrah with us, and that ended amicably. I mean, Derek, we we kind of talked a lot about it and it was something that was just for the best and and um yeah so we were we were sending each other demos like we always have since we've lived in different cities when we lived in chicago we all lived in a for the most of the time we were in chicago in a band we lived in a three flat together each of us occupying a different floor and we we practiced in the kitchen of the bottom flat and we hadn't done that we did that for the for god damn it and maybe i'll catch fire we wrote those very quickly recorded them in a week and 10 days both records were recorded really quickly and uh yeah we just didn't have the money we had to do it fast and i think it was to our advantage it kept us from second guess especially early on when you're still figuring out who you are i mean we're still figuring out who we are but 
it was a lot more daunting back then. Who knows if anyone's even going to hear this, but let's just make, do what we do. And it forced us to work honestly and quickly. So we hadn't done that in years. We were sending each other demos for the last however many records, as long as I can remember. And we would learn each other's ideas, add to them, whatever, as I think I mentioned. And that has served us well. But this time around, I was like, we should, it was the day Dan actually got into at Los Angeles. We had three days of pre-production at our rehearsal space here in the Valley and kind of just knocked the cobwebs off and started like writing ideas. We wrote the last song on the record is called Teenage Heart. We wrote that song first. And Dan and I wrote it very quick, like 15 minutes or something. Wow. We wrote that song. It felt really good. So we just continued to do that. Then we moved into 606 Studios, uh, that handsome Dave Grohl spot. And that's where we wrote most. We wrote most of the record in the live room there. Wow. Wait, so when you say you wrote the record in the live room there, what does that mean? You How many ideas did you have? How did that happen? It just started with uh, with a, like a, a guitar riff or a bass line, or there is an idea, Derek, one of the songs called Break, Derek came up with the music for this. The, the opening riff is Derek's idea. And then we kind of took it from there. Um, so they always just start with an idea, musical idea, no lyrics. We didn't have any lyrics. Um, we ended up mining some stuff that we really liked from the scrap heap that were the demos. But I felt like, you know, if we really want to try and do, we want it to be Alkaline Trio, but we want it to be something new. It's our 10th record. It's like, yes. we, we should switch it up. It's, it's going to sound like us. Maybe it won't make a difference, but we should try. And I feel like it really did make a huge difference. So we didn't have lyrics. We were just writing the music and and really concentrating on the rhythm tracks, which we recorded. All the demoing we did leading up to tracking, uh, we had Cameron Webb, who produced the record, was recording everything, our conversations, our ideas. And so we could go back and what was that thing you said or this, that, that, and the other thing. And that's how we built it. And hence the the hot for preacher blood hair and eyeballs da, 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 the dumb whatever the titanic song was uh if the ghosts of the titanic can hear me i apologize for that but um just it came from the ground up and uh so the live room if for anyone that doesn't know is where the band performs there's the control room where mm -hmm. the board is and the producer and engineer sits and any of your buddies smoking pot or, or Dave Grohl, for instance, hanging out. And then we were in the big room, the big, beautiful room there that uh, is basically like Sound City replicated where they did Nevermind, you yep. know, and, yes, and, yes. and all that kind of so stuff. So this is and Studio that, 606, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and on the same board that Nirvana did Nevermind. We'd actually recorded nice. on that board at Sound City. We did some songs for... Uh, a suicide girls comp we did a sisters of mercy cover and we did a um a tsol cover for the for a tony hawk game so we did those with brett gurowitz at sound city which was like amazing it was so cool to be able to work there and uh we were one of the last bands not the last but one of the last bands to record there uh on that board so getting reacquainted with that board it's like e those neve boards are just they sound like they're an instrument in, in, in themselves. Like, so it was a, just such an honor to be able to work there and to work in this huge live room where we didn't have to use any unnatural reverb. We just used the room mics to get the big drum sound. That's How the, exciting. that's where we wrote the record in the big live room. How exciting. And you've mentioned Derek a few times. I just want to tip my cap to him because an incredible yes. run with you and from everything I read and you just said it, he left am amicably 
And now you got Adam Willard, who you've worked with before, of course. How's the vibe so far with Adam Willard, who I love? It's great. He's such a good man. He's yes. a, he's a gentleman. He's hilarious, <laughs> and he's he's an artist. I mean, through and through. We were like designing like a new hoodie. We're very hands on with everything. So uh, I'm sure you've spoken to Blair. He'll he'll send our manager will send us. I mean, the details of a hoodie, and and Adam and I are like. You know, Dan Dan is involved too. He was at a at his wife's work party last night. So Adam and I were designing this hoodie together, you know, via text. The first show Adam played with us was at Wrigley Field with Fallout Boy. And wow. Adam showed up and already had an alkaline trio, already had like hand done alkaline trio art on the head of his drum. Like the guy is fired up. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And so he played with us like tw I don't know, 20 years ago or something. We did yeah. a uh, like a two-week tour and Derek had already joined the band but we needed he was out with vandals I think or maybe suicide machines but uh Adam came and filled in for us and we fell in love with him back then I'd never met him before but I was a huge fan of his work so he came out just cold and and played we were insta friends and yeah we've been very close friends ever since we've done done uh we did a project called the hell uh Pat Smear played bass on it and we did, we, we like, because of Adam is why we worked at 606, even though he wasn't there. So Adam introduced me to all those guys. How is everything with your man, Dan? How's the vibe working together? It's great. I, I think I can speak for both of us. Like we we're both healthier and happier than we've ever been. I mean, we've always partied pretty hard. We were, you know, big drinkers for a long time and, um, I'll still have an occasional pop, but it's, you know, we're not, we're not like hungover anymore. We're not like, uh, we're just, it's, it's like, I never thought I would say this, but it's so fun being clear and, and healthy. And, you know, I think we're both very content with where we're at, uh, which I also thought would be a problem in songwriting. Like if you're happy, you're fucked. Not true. There's no shortage of horrible things to write about, especially this day and age, unfortunately. Right. Or going in the past, I mean, there, there's always something going on. I mean, there, there's the COVID thing was, you know, a huge test, I think, for all of us. And congratulations for surviving that. I'm thankful I did. I didn't think anyone would. Uh, or I, I, at least I was prepared for that emotionally, right. I thought. Looking back, it was dark as hell. I thought our career was over. I thought our lives were going to be over. And the most fucked part of it was I was cool with it somehow and i wasn't in my right mind so now that that i feel like we are we get along we've always been very close but we get along better we communicate we tell each other we right. love each other every time we right. talk like we're very close and and uh in really good places that is so good to hear man did yeah, you take did you take anything from your experience with blink not content but the way that those guys were doing stuff recording songs were you inspired at all making the new songs or that was kind of how you three did that? Now, when you make Alkaline Trio, you're doing it this way. Was there any crossover for you that you didn't think would happen? Yes, absolutely. The idea for writing the record from the ground up, we wrote California, the Blink record, California. We, we wrote both Blink records that I, I played on. We wrote, me, Mark and Travis wrote those songs together in the same room and everyone was there the whole time um for both records and that was what inspired let's let's start over and do this as a team because it served blink so well 
So that was, and, and it's how we used to do things. The Blink thing absolutely inspired, you know, I, I, I'm so grateful for my time with them. I was just talking to Mark yesterday, mm. um, just checking in, saying hi. And we do, you know, we're, we're, um, we're all still great friends. I talked to Travis last week and uh, welcome home, dude. Uh, like, and, and listening to the new Blink record. And I was like, dude, you played a fucking double kick. What the hell? <laughs> like he's something he said he'd never do. It's killer. I love the new Blink record. So, um, you know, also an amicable, like it just, it, it, it ran its course. When those guys first asked me to join the band, I thought they were on acid thinking <laughs> that that was going to fly. And it did somehow. I it mean, did. it's like, yes. wow, this actually, people are actually coming out to see this thing. And a lot of people are buying the record or whatever and, re and responding really positively to it. But I remember at the time I said to, to Mark, I was like, well, eventually Tom's going to come back. Right. And Mark was like, you know, he was, he, and I don't think it's any secret. He was, he was pretty hurt and upset. And, uh, but I think, you know, somewhere he had to know that that was true. And so, you know, for me, I feel like the timing was perfect. I think everyone's glad that Tom's back, but I'm, uh, I'm really thankful for, for th those guys. And, and I'm proud of the work that we did work. You did a lot of work and I was, you know, just an outsider looking in, but playing all the songs, just the way you conducted yourself. I think we all could learn because while it was an awesome situation in many aspects, I had to imagine there were some parts that were tough. It was mostly, I mean, I, I really, you know, I, I, I'm on Instagram. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a big tech guy. It took me fucking forever to figure out the zoom meaning, excuse my language. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was mostly all positive. I think the, the only thing I remember the first photo we took together as a band, I went to rehearsal in the Valley right? and I was, and you know, Alkaline Trio, we did like Jean, we did Alkaline Trio jeans with Hurley. We had, and I was always, my buddy, Greg Teal, one of my best friends ran Hurley at the time. So I was still, I wasn't even thinking about it, but I would all was wearing Hurley shit. And, um, and I forgot like Blink was like the Hurley band forever. And so when I showed up to practice, like I got a baseball hat on and this Hurley t-shirt and everyone's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like you fucking poser. Like you're trying to, you know, like turn be Tom. And I was like, I didn't know we were going to take a picture. It was like one, like we took a picture against the load, the door, the, the loading dock. And uh, I've got my dopey Hurley shirt on clueless that right. how that would be. Oh my but God. That was like the one thing where kids were like, dude, don't do that. I'm like, do what? Oh, right there. I like if I would have thought of it, I probably might have changed T-shirts just because I don't want to be that guy. So that was the one thing that, um, uh, you know, it was but, it, you know, people talking shit. It's like it, at least they're talking shit. Like at least they're saying something. It's like you're paying attention to this. I don't know who you are. So we're even, you know, like it never it doesn't really bother me. People Good. talk shit. There's always yeah. somebody saying something nasty. And I just kind of feel badly for those people. It's like especially when it, you know, there were definitely points where people would, I, I can take uh, criticism, even if it's nasty, it's like, I'll, I'll take it to mind and consider it. And like, am I doing this wrong? Am I doing this right? Like, what are the optics of this thing? But for the most part, I just kept my head down and did it. And it's like, I just concentrated on the thousands of people at the shows just going bananas. And, and a Grammy nomination. Let's not forget about that, too. Oh, yeah, Grammy nom. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, Matt, yeah. I have a question about the amount of work that Alkaline Trio did in terms of recording songs from 98, then 2000, then 2001, and then it was like 03, 05, 08, 2010. I don't know if bands 
record at that sort of pace anymore. Do you think that had a positive effect on your creativity, whipping out the songs and albums at the rate that you did? I do. I think it's it it uh it was that, and I think it also um yeah we were just we were always we're we're always like throwing ideas at each even when we don't have something to write. There's always like ideas kind of hanging around that we'll play at soundcheck or turn into songs. And as I said earlier, like we write really quickly because there's there is a saying like first thought, best thought. That's not always true, but a lot of times it is. Don't overthink it. Mm. You know, people just just second guessing yourself, I think, is good to an extent. But it's like even if you're saying something that sounds like it's from another song or maybe intentionally is from another song, like just go with it and you can fix it later. Uh, I'll just write down. I wrote a song last night. I just wrote down the first ideas that came to mind. And then when we're in the studio, somebody might say, I don't like that line that make, makes me think of this or da 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 and we'll change it or work on it. It's like, it's malleable. We can fix it later. So just get the ideas out. And nine out of 10 times, it's the original idea sticks. First thought, best thought. I'm right. Can I write that? I'm writing that down right now. I don't think we, I don't think we came up with it. I think Jerry Finn, that was probably a Finnism. The late, great Jerry Finn. Wow. I love that guy. What's that? I I love his work with all the bands he worked with. When you first came across Jerry in a professional way, do you ever feel pressure like, oh, this gentleman maybe is a little older than us and he's been in the business. I need to try to impress him. Do you ever get those sort of nerves and anxiety? Not so much. I met Finn and I call call him Jay Finn because I'll tell you a little Jerry Finn story if you want. Um, yes. It's quick. But his mom um, lived out, I think, in Victorville. She lived in a trailer like out in the desert. A really nice trailer, I think, that, you know, it's how she wanted to live and she would, Jerry would show up and give her a six pack and hang out with her and and apparently they were they were extremely close she sounds like a cool lady um and uh she said jerry you need to like you need to come up with a better like a flashier name and he was like like what you know like she's like like jay finn and so like jay finn was like his that's all i what's up jay finn um but we became friends when he was working on the smoking popes record who those those guys we grew up in like two two little towns out in the burbs they were like our neighbors and our first like oh we could do this too kind of thing it was like youth brigade and smoking popes were like our first wait we can do this we're shitty kids but we can do this (laughs) And uh, not that the Popes are shitty kids at all. They're awesome people. But Shout out Josh yeah. Caterer. Love him. I love Josh. He's a wonderful, wonderful person. So so lovely. All those guys. And so funny. They're so funny. His, uh, oh man, he has an impression of, I'll think of it and get back to you. Okay. But, but anyway, um, yeah. So, so uh, met Jerry with the Popes. And so when we started working together, Jerry mixed uh, a record of ours. Oh, I forget which I, I lose track of what record came out when Crimson or uh, from here to infirmary. Okay, Mike from Beck her, played yeah. on it uh, from the Popes was he was in our band for for a while, and so Jerry mixed our record. And I can say this now because obviously Jerry's not with us anymore in person anyway. But um, uh, he mixed our record for free because he loved the band. Wow. wow. And uh, and he's that kind of guy. And there's there's a really great interview that Blink did. Mark is far better spoken than I. And he he uh, talks about Jerry Finn in their um, uh, in the Zane Lowe interview that they did at Travis's house, where Jerry is just the most. He did never wanted his picture taken. I have one of the few photos 
yeah, from my wedding. I was I was married. I'm not anymore. But but he came to my wedding with his with his girl Jen, who's also still a great friend of mine. And I have one of the very few pictures of Jerry Finn that he allowed anyone to take because he did not want the spotlight at all. Wow. He liked to remain anonymous. Very humble guy. And but he would stay like as Mark says in this interview, like an engineer or a, or a kid that was. Um, you know, like working at the studio who's like up and coming or, or, you know, wants to do what Jerry does would ask about mic tricks or would ask about like, I mean, I know that, that uh, he, he, and like Dr. He, he helped like Dr. Luke with a bunch of stuff early in his career. Jerry would answer any questions, share any tricks with anyone where a lot of producers are very cagey. Jerry right. was just like, depending on who was asking, if it was a kid at the studio he would spend all night showing him how to do something, not getting paid, not doing it, not none of that. And he, yeah, he's, uh, and always, always worked with us. We, we didn't have a, a blink or a green day budget. Um, but he would always, he wanted to work on the records. He would just, you know, bend, bend the Jerry rules or Finn. fudge contracts so that it could work. Great and you, guy. And you know, if you don't know of Jerry Finn, you may be thinking, oh, he's probably like a 50 or 60 year old man when this was happening. No, he was probably in his 20s or 30s. And to be that self-aware and that generous with his time. He died when he was just, 37. When he's 37 years old. God damn. Well, yeah, it's dark. I don't want to. But but That's I okay. was there with him. Uh, he was in a coma for a, for a long time. And yeah, it was it was a bummer. Um, but. I'm just so grateful that I knew him and that we worked with him. Absolutely. A couple more things, and I'm going to let you go. Uh, no, whatever. Awesome. I'm having a good time. Right, thanks. Me too. Playing on the Warp Tour three, four, or five times for you, did that uh, educate you or your band on anything positive or negative, how to be treated, how to treat other bands? What was your overall experience with Warp Tour? It was great. I mean, it's a grind. If it, 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 you know, it always, whenever we're on stage, it's like, I, I, I never, I don't like to use the word work because we don't work music. We play music. It's like something we would do if no one was listening for, you know, if we had jobby jobs, we'd still get together and make our, whoever it is. It's like, I'd, I'd write songs no matter what playing with, um, you know, bad religion, those guys are, you know, one of my first loves, and they're still really, really good friends of ours. We toured with them a couple of years ago, and I love that band. I love those guys. Yeah. And so seeing, you know, the way that they took us under their wing, that was a big one. I mean, we made friends with pretty much everyone, and uh, especially if you're on the whole tour together, because it's like nine weeks in 110 degree parking lots. Um, and it's the it's the best. I wouldn't trade it for anything. But they're long, hot days, and it really like there's nothing else to do but hang out with everybody, you know. Um, and it was a blast. It's not what else would you want to do? You're out with all these killer bands, bands that I'd never heard. <laughs> Dylan, I never uh, saw Dillinger Escape Plan or Every Time I Died. Now two of my favorite bands and some of my favorite people. So yeah, Warp Tour was a game changer and, and helped our career immensely. We're playing Slovenia next year and it's like Bad Caddies, uh, Bad Religion, Descendants are also like one of my first loves. And those guys are still like, we're all super close. Bill Stevenson produced an Alkaline Trio record a few years ago. So yeah, we I mean, I, I could go on all day about the shit we learned on Warp Tour or the friends that we've made that you know, there's never been, I, we just don't fall out. Like we I've, friendships come and go, but the, the relationships with bands you've shared stages with and traveled with and, you know, walked through fire to some extent with is kind of a lifelong bond. 
as Matt and I are hanging out right now, we're a week away from Christmas. The new album, the 10th, 10th full-length album, comes out in January. Is there any part of you that wants to tinker with any of the songs, or are they all done? You can't touch them at this point. They're all done. Uh, but I think, um, and anyone listening that it plays in a band or as an artist, it's like there's always something that you could wish you did different. <laughs> yeah. And there were a couple of those things, but luckily, like we wrote the songs really quickly. We recorded the rhythm tracks really quickly, but I spent like over a month on just guitars. We pl- We used actual amps, you know, I mean, some people use the Kemper or whatever, but we used actual amps. And we had like 20 different amps and we had like 30 different guitars. Um, and we just tailor made the guitar was, I, you know, I've always paid attention, but this record is the longest I've ever spent writing guitar parts. Oh, wow. And we had a, we had a, uh, at least I had a rule for myself, no bar chords. Like there are bar chords there. Of course, there's a time and a place, but don't do that first. Try every other thing you can. And then if it calls for a, a, a power chord, then use it. So uh, I really like challenge myself. And I, for the most part, I'm really proud of it. There's like a couple little tweaks I would have made, but I listened to the record front to back a couple nights ago. And I'm like, it's, I'm proud of it. You know, how, how other people see it. It's like describing what you look like, like seeing yourself in the mirror, isn't what other people see, or like the same thing with music or art. I'm sure, as you know, it's like, I don't know what it sounds like to anybody else, but I'm happy with it. So I I feel like it's it's got a bow on it, and hopefully people uh, enjoy it. Hot for Preacher is the actual name of a song on there, even though it was just a fun title you guys were messing with. Which song is the Titanic song on the album? Um, the Titanic song... I don't think the Titanic song made the record. Oh, it didn't make the record. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's funny. Like, some of the titles, like Blood, Hair, and Eyeballs, we just kept... I, I thought it was a great... It was one of our first ideas for what we're going to call the record. So we were kind of going through all the lyrics and song ideas, song titles, and some of them, like Hot for Preacher, just there's, there's of course, fire in the fucking song, but, you know, it, it, it fits like Blood, Hair and Eyeballs. It's not something that's ever said in the song, which Green Day are famous for doing, you know, right. Bab Juvie Who or like those funny like song titles. I, I mean, you'd have to ask Billy, but sometimes it's like it doesn't really matter what the song's called. If, as long it, I mean, they do make sense. They are related somehow. So Hot for Preacher, we just thought that was that was almost the record title. Like there's a song called Break. And we just called it break. Not all of them were like silly. It was just like there's a, there's breaks in the song or in the chorus. So we just called it break to differentiate. And even the silly titles, we we call them something that made insp- the the music inspired or that we could identify. Each of us could identify the song with. We're like, what if we call it this? Well, you know what we're talking about? Yeah, because there was like 15 songs. And so a couple like break because of the breaks in the chorus, it's like it formed the lyrics. I'm like, well, here's here's the first word that came to mind. Let's write something that has to do with the, the word break. And that's how I wrote the lyrics for break was based on that fake title. Um, and that happened periodically, like kind of, I think there's maybe four or five songs that that initial title informed the lyrics. Thanks for sharing all this. I appreciate yeah. this. No worries. It's fun to talk about. I, I mean, we, we, it was a labor of love. We worked really hard on it, but it was a absolute blast and i did that we did the the rhythm tracking we bass and drums were all recorded at 606 and then foos were were um coming in to start rehearsing with this new drummer guy named josh freeze i've not 
I love that dude. I was going to yeah. try and make a joke, but Josh is a dear friend of mine. And, and uh, we heard murmurs. They kept it very quiet, but it's kind of hard, you know, when you see Josh walking in as you're walking out, like, hey, buddy. Right. I'm not going to ask what you're doing here because I think I already know. But um, so we we were in on that little secret. And uh, it was, you know, it was very inspiring having those guys coming in after we were there. And, and uh, you, you know, if you're sharing a, if you're sharing a, a space with, with those gentlemen, you know, that you're probably doing something right. Absolutely. So Absolutely. Uh, it was, it was, it was great fun. We're, we're very thankful to Dave for having us. Um, and uh, yeah, I digress, but hopefully that sums things up. If there is someone that has never heard of Alkaline Trio, you know, maybe they're like 17 years old and maybe they like the kind of music you make. What are the first three albums that you created of the 10 you've done that you would give to them? Ooh, that's a good question. I would probably give them God Damn It just because it's the first one. Right. Um, something in the middle, uh, maybe uh, This Addiction and then the new one. They're all, they're all like, I mean, to me, there isn't really a favorite. They're all kind of like, you know, timestamps of our history. So I'm, I'm, you know, there's, there's definitely some old songs where we, we will laugh at the, some of the decisions we made. One of which the God damn it, Dan was in another band called Tuesday back in the day. And he sang all of his backup lyrics before I sang the leads. <laughs> like <laughs> what he had to go on tour so he just say rather than just wait there was no like right. deadline like nobody kicked nobody knew who we were but dan like wanted to get it done so he sang all his backups and they're so out of time and sing i try i matched him as best i could but right i'm like i guess i gotta sing this one a little out of tune um and i mean the, it's all over the map we didn't really know what we were doing but you know i guess we knew who we were of the 10 alkaline trio albums I'm a positive guy, but this is a little negative. Is there That's one okay. that is there one that doesn't make you feel great? Not because it's not good or bad, but because you're just I don't know. Maybe you're going through something else in life, like where you hear it and you're just like, oh god. Yeah, I can't listen to, uh, and I just actually I've gotten okay with it now because it is what it is. But uh, our record, Good Morning, is I can't, I was so shredded. I I was seeing. Um, Dr. Sugarman is like the singer, doctor guy. I've you know who Sugarman. Him. I've I'm sure him, yes. your voice guy. You've seen Sugarman. Yes. Um, great guy. Uh, him and his brother, uh, rest his soul. Like they're they're beautiful people. Uh, his brother was like an addiction uh, guru, um, recovery guru, and um, that was my intro into recovery of you know considering maybe this is this drinking thing. I mean, I was going through a hard time emotionally and just treating self-medicating with beer. And it was, I had like acid reflux and it was shredding my throat and I couldn't, I, it, I was in such a torn up place that, I mean, I don't know who that guy is anymore, but the good morning is still a rough listen for me. If you hear it, it's like, I can't sing. It's like, I, there's notes, there's things that, and Jerry was bummed. You know, he, I was unhealthy. We did what we could, but it was like, I stayed in Los Angeles for like a month which was also difficult because the relationship I was in at the time was what was a mess in my life. Like it was just haunting and, and, you know, heart, it was, it was a lot of heartache oh. and it, it was happening in Los Angeles. I was living in the Bay area at the time, but I was living in hotels in Los Angeles, which sounds dreamy and, and, you know, cool as hell, but, and it was, but I was just in a terrible place. So yeah, good morning's the one that I'm like, eh, not so much people love it. So I'm grateful for that. 
Blood, Hair, and Eyeballs is out in January, and then you've got the big tour, which kicks off in Anaheim, not too far from where I am, and you're going to be out on the road. Matt, I said it in the beginning, you sound great, you look great, the songs that I've heard are inspiring. As I said, I went back, I'm like, I'm on an Alkaline Trio kick right now. And just to have watched you from a distance, all that you've accomplished, this business is so freaking hard, and you have done amazingly well. Congratulations on everything. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that very much. Um, I will see you at one of your shows, and thank you so much for joining me on the radio and on my podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for all your support, dude. I'm it's wonderful to see you again. You look great, too. Thank you. Thank you. All right. See you later, Matt. All right, Matt Stryker. Okay. Take care, buddy. Take care as well. That's another episode of Strikers Tuna on Toast. Promise it'll get better. Most likely. For sure. <laughs> Maybe.